Well, good morning, everybody, and happy Easter. Hey, I appreciate all of you who stepped up and said, we'll come to the 8 o'clock service and do the 8 plus 1. Thank you for being here. For those of you who are visiting, I want to tell you a quick story about myself. Those of you who've been here a while, you know you get to hear my stories all the time. But there's two things I love in life, swimming and pranks. My mom tells me when I was three years old, she was in a swimming pool, and I was in some sort of floating device. And my mom, she's a lot like me, she lost attention, and she turned around, and I was gone. And she freaked out. And then she found me swimming under the water. And she was like, oh, my goodness. So I've just always loved swimming. Except for that when you get older and you add pranks to that, it can get very, very bad. And many, many times in my life, I remember thinking to myself, and I don't know why I never learned the first time, this is a fantastic idea. I will jump into the water, swim over to a family member, a friend, my sister, of course, my sister, and I'm going to tickle her foot. I'm going to pick her up, I'm going to tip her over, I'm going to do something like that. Except for that, what happens if you startle somebody, especially if they're in the ocean or a lake, and they can't see you, and they don't know what happened? They freak out, and what do they start doing? Kicking whatever's under the water. And I'll never forget these moments in my life, because there were a couple of them where I kept doing this, thinking maybe as I got bigger and stronger, I'd be able to avoid this conundrum. But I found myself in these moments literally being kicked and stomped down, and now there's bodies over top of me, and because I swam over them, I'm running out of air. And what happens in that moment where there are people over you and you have no air? You panic. And when you panic, don't you start to make really bad decisions. I mean, you'll do anything. You'll pull them under. You'll do whatever you have to do to get to the top, and your brain stops thinking clearly, and you consequently will do crazy things. Well, here's what I've learned. That is the same as life. I'm 39 years old. I'll finally be 40 this year. I don't know if I'm looking forward to it or not. But life is like that. Life happens. Things happen. It gets hard, whatever it is. And when it does, when it does, inevitably, you start to panic. And when you panic, you may say something, you may do something that you regret the rest of your life, something that could cost you a job, a friendship, a marriage, whatever it is. And when you panic and when you stop believing that God is sovereign and he's not done with your story and you make those bad decisions, the question is, what do we do next? Well, this happened a couple weeks ago. I... uh, Crazy story. I wish I had time to tell the details so you could see all the ways that God worked. But let me just say, through a crazy God story, I went out to the hospital on a late Friday night. And when I got out there, I only went out for for this thing that God had kind of called me to. And I left the hospital. I went to the video store. I thought, I'll rent my wife a movie. It's Friday night. We'll watch a movie. And as I'm leaving the hospital, I open up my phone, and I've got an email from another Kingsway family saying, would you send somebody to the hospital tomorrow? And I'm literally driving in front of the hospital while reading the email. And I thought well, why send somebody tomorrow? I mean, it's Friday night. I'd like to watch this movie with my wife, but why not? So I turn around and I go back to the hospital and they told me my brother was just diagnosed with stage four cancer. And uh, he really wants to talk to somebody. So I show up in the room. I don't know him. I've only met the other person like once. I don't know him. I've never even heard from him. And I go in and, and, and I was told he's probably asleep. It's been a really long day. He's got some uh, pain meds in him to help him deal with the pain. And I go in and he's not asleep, God's hand again. And we sit down and we start talking. And I ask him a series of questions, and, and it's been a long day, it's tiring. He's got stage four cancer, and he tells me he's probably got months to live. Maybe. And I said, are you afraid of that at all? He said, I'm not afraid to die. I'm not afraid to die. He said, but this, I'm very concerned. I'm very concerned that I've gone too far. 
That's an interesting phrase. So, so tell me what that means. And look, I don't have time to go over your entire life history, so can you boil it down to the top two or three? What are the things you think you did? And he told me about a couple, but he narrowed it down to one real fast. And he told me about a season in his life that was really, really hard, and um, he was angry at God. And so he, uh, I won't say exactly what he said, but he, he cursed at God and told God to get away. He didn't want anything to do with him. But now there's a reality that's facing him, a reality that in a matter of months, probably not decades, probably not years, probably a matter of months, he's going to stand before that very same God that he pushed away and said, go away, and he's wrestling with, what do I, what's going to happen now? What's God going to do with me now? And he started quoting verses. He told me he read through the Bible twice. He knew the Bible pretty well, but I, he starts quoting things like the unforgivable sin, and, and literally, am I outside of God's grace because I've pushed God away? Now, here's what I know. Most of us, most of us have not gone that far. We've not actually yelled at God or cursed at God and told him to get away. But what we've done is with our lives, we've told him, go away. I don't want you. You're not welcome here. And sometimes we do that in subtle ways when people come up to us and ask us questions about our faith or about this thing called Easter that we do. And we say, ah, you know, I don't know about that whole thing, you know. It's just something my family does. Sometimes we do it by saying yes to things we know that don't honor God over and over and over again, and sometimes we just flat push God away. But I'm here to tell you another story in the Bible, one where that same kind of thing happened, but there's a story of redemption. Let's take a look for a minute. This comes from a guy named Peter. Now, you may have known him as Peter. You may know him as Simon or Simon Peter. He's all three. His birth name is Simon. Jesus changes his name to Peter. And he was probably the disciple, the apostle, one of the most prominent figures, one of the guys closest to Jesus in Jesus' earthly ministry. And as Jesus walked on the earth teaching Peter about the things he needs to know, towards the end of Jesus' ministry, he says to him, he looks at me, he says, Peter, there's going to come a day where you are going to fail me. And when that day comes, I want you to turn back and I want you to take care of your brothers. And Peter's adamant, no way, not me, not gonna happen. Fast forward just a little bit of time and now we're sitting at the Last Supper and Judas Iscariot has gotten up to leave and Jesus begins to warn all the disciples, you're all going to fail me, you're all going to betray me, this is going to happen, you're all going to turn away when I needed you the most. And then Peter's response is this, Matthew chapter 26, verse 33, Peter declared, even if everyone else deserts you, I will never desert you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny three times that you even know me. Peter's response is, is powerful. No, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And all the other disciples vowed the same. No matter what, I'm going down with the ship, Jesus. I'm never going to quit on you. I'm never going to turn my back on you. I'm never going to deny you. Well, there's a problem with this, Peter. Jesus can't be wrong. He's never wrong. And the story would go on. Jesus would go and take the disciples off to the garden to pray. And then he'd see some soldiers off the distance and they would come to arrest Jesus. So Peter's going to be clear to prove himself, to be vindicated before himself near the disciples. When the soldiers show up to arrest Jesus, he pulls out a sword and he lops off a soldier's ear. And Jesus stops Peter. Put down the sword, Peter. I'm letting this happen, and he takes the ear, and he heals the Roman soldier, and Peter doesn't know what to do next, so Peter and John follow at a distance as Jesus is beaten and, and taken away, 
And as he's being tried inside a building, John has some connections. So John goes right in and he's able to watch the trial. However, Peter doesn't have those same connections. So we find this in, in John 18, verse 16. Peter had to stay outside the gate. Then the disciple who knew the high priest, that's John, spoke to the woman watching at the gate and, and she let Peter in. But as she's letting Peter in, John is now on ahead Verse 17, the woman asked Peter, you're not one of that man's disciples, are you? No, I am not. Because it was cold. The household servants and the guards had made a charcoal fire. They stood around it, warming themselves. And Peter stood with them, warming himself. I'll leave this up here for a minute. And as the story would go on in the rest of John 18, Peter does exactly what Jesus told him he would do. He doesn't just deny Jesus once, but around these charcoal fires, he denies him two more times. And Luke tells us that right as Peter gets to that third denial, the rooster crows, and just like Jesus said, before the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me, or you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And right when the rooster crows, according to Luke, Jesus and Peter's eyes meet. Peter, or sorry, Jesus is inside. He's being tried. People are spitting on him and mocking him and punching him. And Peter's outside denying. But when that rooster crows, Jesus knew Peter would fail. And he turns and their eyes meet. And that's all we read in Luke. But when it happens, I can only imagine the melting feeling inside Peter. He knew I would fail him. He knew. you pay attention to this word and we'll come back to it later as Jesus would later go on and be crucified flogged crown of thorns pierced on his head brutal 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 painful death Peter hid in an upper room with most of the other disciples wondering what's going to happen next if this is what they do to our leader what are they going to do to us Where's all this going? Have we wasted the last three years of our lives? Which is why it was a bit of a shock. When early Sunday morning, a couple of ladies come running in. Say, he's gone. He's gone. The tomb is empty. They've moved the body. Something's happened. And Peter and John again run to the tomb. And I love John's telling the story because John is quick to let us know that he's faster than Peter. He got there first. That's totally how I would tell the story. <laughs> but even though John gets to the tomb first, Peter goes in first. What in the world could be going through Peter's mind in this moment? Where is the body? What happened to him? What does this mean? And as he goes in and he finds there is no Jesus in there. Over the next days, Jesus appears over and over and over again. Nobody really knows when he's coming or where he's going or when he's going. He just shows up and he does his thing. And he comes to about 500 people over that span of time, proving to them that he truly rose from the dead. Not in spirit, but in actual body form. So much so that he can look at one guy named Thomas and say, go ahead, touch, touch the holes, Thomas. 
you're not so convinced, go ahead, touch it for yourself. It's real flesh and bone. Thomas is probably a little intimidated. We're not really sure what to do with that. And I tell you this story because I wonder sometimes if we feel like Peter. What if my greatest mistake, the most embarrassing, shameful thing I've ever done, no matter how bad it is, what if it was the thing? Or what if it wasn't that it was so bad? It's just that I keep saying I'll never do it again and that I did it again. What if I finally went one time too far? What if God is finally sitting there saying, I'm done with you? And then a resurrection happens. And it leaves Peter, just like it leaves all of us, wondering, what could this mean for us? Well, later on in the New Testament, we learn that resurrection means really three things. There are more, but three very important things that I want you to latch on to today. As you go about your Easter day, I want you to grab these three things. The first thing that we learn that resurrection means is this. There is a future judgment coming after this life is over. And before you get totally depressed about that, think about this for a minute. All the hurt, all the pain, all the bad stuff that happens in this life. There is a future, future judgment that is coming. So we don't have to worry about uh, all, the, all the injustices of this world. I went and saw Batman versus Superman. I don't know whether to tell you whether or not you should or shouldn't see it. You have to decide on your own. I will say this. They bring up this old philosophical question in there as it's relating to Superman, and they're trying to compare him to God, and they're trying to compare him to Jesus, which really irritates me. I'll just say that. But anyway... In the movie, they're making this point. Either God is all powerful and he's not all good or all loving or he's all loving and he's not all powerful. And the whole argument goes like this. If God is all powerful and all loving, then why does he not stop injustices? Either he doesn't have the power to stop them or he doesn't care. There's no other option. The resurrection tells us there is another option. It's called judgment day. That day when all good will be honored and rewarded and all evil will be judged. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this, for we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or the evil we have done in this earthly body. Now, that should leave you with a little bit of a terrifying awe. Like my friend who I met two weeks ago in the hospital going, I know the day is no longer decades out. It's no longer way out there in the future. It is imminent. It is right in front of me. What's going to happen next? The resurrection tells us what's going to happen next is a day of reckoning. But that's not all that it tells us. It also tells us, number two, that because Jesus was raised, we who love Christ will be raised in eternity as well. And that is why we call this good news. Jesus died for all, all. However, his death is only applied for those who love him for those who receive him. It's like somebody giving you a Christmas present on your birthday or an Easter egg on Easter and you just sit it on the shelf and you never actually open it and find out what's inside. It's not enough that you were given the gift. You must actually open the present and put to use the toy or whatever it is that's inside. You must actually put it and apply it to your life. The good news that Jesus didn't stay in the tomb is that when he went to the cross, he took our pain, he took our suffering, he took our sin, he took all of it 
so that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter eight, verse one. And Paul who wrote that very verse says, I am the chief of sinners. I'm the president, the CEO, the worst sinner that there ever was. I killed people because I hated Jesus. And then I met Jesus and it changed everything. And that same Paul says later, man, I look forward to that day where I stand before Christ. And I press on to take hold of that for which Jesus took hold of me. And so now I forget what's behind me and I run towards that. He also says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 21 to 23. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, that's Adam and Eve, the first man, Everyone who belongs to Christ will be given a new life. But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. Jesus raised first, and that's a guarantee, then a promise that we who love Jesus will raise next. So we hold out in hope that this world, this life is not the end. And then number three, here's what resurrection tells us. The resurrection of Christ gives us purpose here on earth and the power to live for Christ. Now, this is huge because the resurrection tells us no matter where we've been, no matter what we've done, no matter how far we've gone, God can and will and plans to use us still, still. In fact, Paul, that same guy, says this, 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17, he says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the whole world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. That night in the hospital, I started quoting passages just like this one. I said, do you realize why Jesus came? He came so that our sins would no longer count against us. My friend began to well up tears in his eyes, and he said, I want that. But he wasn't convinced. Had he gone too far? That's one thing to sin. It's another thing to mess up. It's another thing to uh, even have a pattern of sin. But when you yell at God and tell him, go away, that's just a lot to overcome. Kind of like Peter. Three times, three times, not one time, three times. Denying he even knew him. And then this. John chapter 21. Peter and many of the disciples are in a boat fishing. And Jesus cries out to them from the shore. Well, Peter realizes it's Jesus because John tells him it's the Lord. Peter, who'd taken off his outer tunic while he was fishing, 
He throws his tuna back on. He doesn't even wait for the boat. He doesn't wait for the fish. He jumps into the water. And John chapter 21 verse 9 says this, And when they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them. Fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. This word here, remember I told you to remember that earlier in John 18? This word charcoal, it's only used twice in the entire Bible. Guess which two? I already showed it to you. It's as if Jesus has recreated the scene of the crime on the beach. There are lots of fires in the Bible. Lots of fires in the Bible. But there's only two charcoal fires. And Jesus has led Peter back to the most shameful, embarrassing, broken moment of his life. You know, a charcoal fire smells different than another kind of fire, doesn't it? Some might say a fire like you'd find in heaven. I'm just saying it usually involves food. That's a good thing. But it smells different. You can imagine Peter getting to the beach and maybe, just maybe, it's like driving past a fast food restaurant. All his olfactory senses start going off like, hey, I've smelled this before. Oh man, what's about to happen? And in the story, what happens is Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me more than these? And he's got some fish on a fire. Lord, you know I love you. You know I love you. Twice. And then John 21, verse 17 A third time, Jesus asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, then feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were young, you were able to, to do as you liked. You dressed yourself and you went wherever you wanted to go. When you were old, you will stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. And Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. Then Jesus told him, follow me. In a nutshell, what Jesus just did in Peter's life is he said, Peter, you blew it three times. Peter, do you love me? Yes. Peter, do you love me? Yes. Peter, do you love me? Yes. Then go feed my sheep, Peter. Quit wallowing in your sin. Quit being stuck in your mistake. I know it was bad. I'm not dismissing it. And as I sat in the hospital room that night, I said, friend, I know what you did is wrong. I'm not dismissing it. I'm saying it's the reason Jesus died, but he didn't stay dead. Good Friday happened, but so did Easter Sunday. So let Good Friday take your sin to the cross and be resurrected with him. He said, but what do I do? I've wasted my life. I said, you take every moment between this one and your last breath and you glorify him. And two days later, he died. But before he died, by about two hours, I sat in a hospital room with him. And he repeated these words. I believe Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And I accept him as my personal Lord and Savior. 
And my friend is now in a cancer-free body. My friend is in heaven, longing and looking forward to the day when Christ returns. It takes all who love him home because that's what resurrection means. And friends, as you gather today around meals and do Easter egg hunts and all kinds of fun things that I'm going to do too, Please don't forget to stop and thank God that your worst day ever wasn't the last day ever. And listen, if you're outside of God, if you are not right with him, if you have something that stands between the two of you, Jesus died for that thing. Would you please, please today, please today seek him. And thank him that he died and that he rose to give you life. I want to pray for us now. I want to pray as we're not done, the service isn't over. I just want to pray that God would keep stirring in your heart and printing this resurrection message in you as he convicts you of your sin and brings about grace and new life in you. Father, thank you that Jesus came. Thank you that Jesus died. Thank you, thank you that Jesus rose from the dead. And just like I told my friend in the hospital, you told us in 1 John chapter 1 and in chapter 2 verse 1, you tell us all these things so that we will not sin, but if we do sin, we have one, Jesus Christ, who's an advocate, and he goes on our behalf before you to plead our case. This is what resurrection means. Now, God, for all of us who have sinned and fallen short of your glory, that's all of us, may we walk in the new life that you've given us through the resurrection from the dead. You've resurrected our lives. You can resurrect our marriages. You can resurrect our parenting. You can resurrect our kids. You can resurrect our homes and our jobs and our community and our country. Oh, God, may we walk in faithfulness to you and trust you to bring life from death. God, I pray right now as we seek you, as we worship you, as we give you glory and honor and praise for all that you have done, Lord, may you stir up in us a heart of generosity that causes us to act in Jesus' name.